0: What a tremendous awe-inspiring and I'm um, really past anything that's beyond human comprehension in to think that before the foundation of the world, indeed, the very purpose behind creating the world is that you might redeem a people and bring them into union with your son, our father, that you might create a people to live with you in eternal fellowship in the sun by the spirit for all eternity on a new heavens and a new earth. And we gather together here in this little church, in this little place, in one sense on this little planet in your massive universe to worship you for your great work of redemption, to delight in you for your own glory, for your own majesty that fills our hearts with praise and gratitude and longing and desire to see more and more of you and to know more and more of you. Help us as we spend these few moments together to listen to your word as your word, to grow together as your people, as your body, O Christ, to be more effective in the way that we encourage one another in love and in truth, to help one another in this walk of grace that we live on this side of heaven as we anticipate being with you forever, so guide us and lead us. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you, and we pray in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Well, we come this morning to what I intend to be uh, the final message on what has been. Well, it was intended to be one; it's now three. But I think, hopefully, uh, help, hopefully helpful, helpfully, hopefully helpfully, uh, for us as a body. Say that five times. Uh, Looking at the issue of confronting sin, of lovingly confronting sin uh, among the body. How we deal with sin in one another's life. And it is, in fact, one of the most crucial aspects of how we together pursue holiness with one another as those who are the body of Christ. And so it's well worth the time that we've spent on it. and, And I do hope to finish this morning. I may end up having to skip some of what's in my notes, but... We'll see how that goes, but we do want to take hold of and and weigh the importance of this, what is probably one of the most difficult aspects of our Christian life together is having to deal with sin, not only our own sin, that's hard enough as it is, but to be an instrument of grace and help in one another's life in helping each other deal with sin, disobedience, those, those things that can cause a... Break and fellowship those things that can bring dishonor to Christ. And those things that bring harm uh, to us as individuals. And so it's worth the time that, that we've spent on it. There's of course so much more that could be said. Uh, we're hitting just some highlights and some things that I hope will be helpful to all of us. Now as we noted at the very beginning of this uh, two weeks ago or three weeks ago. That, that while we are called to loving confrontation of, with each other among the body. There's also that poisonous error that can come along and hide itself and even what can seem like the best intentions and that is the self-righteous sin of judging and there is of course a distinction between that self-righteous and proud sense of condemnation of one another for one another's sin judging one another and what we are actually called to do which is to lovingly help one another in our walk of grace help one another to see things that we might be blind to To be aware of things that otherwise we might let go unchecked. And so while there is certainly the danger for all of us of that pernicious sin of self-righteousness and judging, which we must always be diligent to avoid, and we must always be ruthless with our own hearts to make sure we're not slipping into that, there is also the command that we need to lovingly deal with each other's sin and help each other deal with sin. It is a command of the Lord. We looked at several passages dealing with that. But he says, we are to go and to rebuke a brother privately who is caught into sin. Paul says, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, go restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And on and on it goes in scripture. And we noted that it is, in fact, an expression of love for Christ and an expression of our love for one another as brothers and sisters in the body. And therefore, as an expression of love for one another in the body, it is to be done with humility. It's to be done with humility. And this humility comes from each of our own deep awareness of our own sin and our own fallenness, our own need of grace continually. That helps us to deal gently with the sin in one another's lives. Jesus said it this way in the context of judging, you remember, this is just a reminder of Matthew chapter 7, that we are to be aware of the log that is in our own eye before we are concerned with the speck that is in our brother's eye. We are to be those characterized by the attitude of how Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount, those who are poor in spirit, those who are mourning over our own sin, and therefore those who can be merciful to others, patient and long-suffering. So it is to be done also, not only with an attitude of love, but this attitude of love is expressed with this motivation, that when we confront sin, it is to be with the end goal of restoration. It is to be with the end goal of building up this erring brother or sister. It is to be with the desire to restore them to a right walk with the Lord and a right walk with God's people in holiness and righteousness. That is the goal. That is the goal. The the main purpose of confronting sin isn't just to have a laundry list of wrongdoings. It is ultimately with the hope that this erring brother or sister would be restored to a place of righteousness. This is beautifully stated by Paul in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that is to say, those who are bearing the character qualities of one who is under the power of the Holy Spirit. He just listed that in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. You who are spiritual, go and restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And again, this is such a beautiful statement, really reflecting the Lord's words in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. He calls them brethren. That's the attitude that we are to go to uh, to the erring brother or sister, that we are in the family. They are in the same spiritual family. We go to them out of a desire, again, to maintain the unity of the Spirit, to heal and to help, not to break and destroy. And he says the goal of this among these spiritual family members is to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And that's a beautiful idea in secular Greek, that term is sometimes used to setting a bone right that has been broken or misplaced. Here it is the idea of setting right an erring brother again, of bringing them back into the full experience and joy of fellowship and righteousness. That's the goal. One said this, actually commenting on another passage, but it relates to this. He says this, When you expose sin and call for repentance, aim to build up your brother in his faith, hope. And love. Resist the natural sinful impulse to heap guilt and to tear down, and instead correct in order to encourage. All Christian correction aims at restoration. We are a people who relentlessly have something good to say. End quote. So there's a sense in all of our confrontation that it should also be measured or be attended with a certain amount of encouragement as well. And a a clearly stated purpose of restoration. But that doesn't mean that at times there won't be the need to say hard things that come with a sting, that come with a certain amount of pain. We see that, and we've looked just briefly at Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. There were sinning members among the church, Paul had experienced great hurt at their hands. And he wrote them what he refers to as a sorrowful letter, a severe letter. And it was a letter that was designed to expose their sin and to do so in a very pointed way. And in fact, it did, and it caused them regret, and it caused them sorrow. And Paul was, because he loved them, he was distraught over that. He says, I... I did regret that I wrote it, but then I didn't regret that I wrote it because I saw that the regret that it caused was actually for many a godly sorrow that led to repentance. But it was necessary that he wound them before they could be healed. Again, borrowing the words of another, they caught this well. He said, The ultimate objective of Paul's severe letter was to have the Corinthians repent. This could be done only by hurting them through his corrective words. So while the goal is restoration, while the attitude is humility, while the spirit is that of gentleness, there are times where even that well-intended and that well-meant and indeed rightly given rebuke nonetheless has a sting to it. It hurts. It is corrective. But it is also a matter of obedience. It is our responsibility to one another for which we are also accountable. And each believer has this ministry, this ministry responsibility to one another. I'll mention this again later, but this is not the sole responsibility of the pastor or elders. It's not as if there's every problem is to go to them and then they're to be the ones that you sick on it, as it were, or to go deal with it. This is a ministry responsibility that we have to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is not the sole responsibility of the pastor at all. Neither are those the commands that are given to Scripture. Now, last week we began to answer this question. Why do we need to give loving confrontation? Why do we need to give loving confrontation? In other words, what are the reasons it is important to be willing to confront sin and error when necessary? And we noted last week that it was a necessary aspect of biblical love. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. And of course, the main idea there is that love does not take a glee in unrighteousness, does does not rejoice in the sin or the falling of another, but it also has the idea that Love recognizes that righteousness is what is good and best for each individual and wants to bring those who are in a state of unrighteousness into line with the truth, into line with God's word. At least seeks to do that. And that means then to truly love that person. It means at times speaking hard truths out of a matter, means of a desire to protect and to care for them. We noted last week also that it was necessary for the witness and the purity of the church. Sin destroys both the spiritual health of the body and mars her witness and the glorious, and the, their testimony of the glory of Christ and the holiness of the church. So we considered 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul says a statement we're well aware of. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. If sin is a reman- allowed to remain in the body and it's left unchecked, evil has an evil influence that spreads to others in the body. And so therefore it needs to be addressed. These Corinthians, in this case, had a false sense of their spirituality. They had a false sense of what love and biblical love is. And they thought tolerance was the answer. Overlooking that sin, and in fact, they prided themselves on that. And Paul says that is, in fact, arrogance. It's not love. It's arrogance. We want to look now where we pick up where we left off and note this point. That it's necessary to confront sin. It's needful to confront sin For the spiritual growth and unity of the church. For the spiritual growth and unity of the church. One of the most glorious truths of salvation is that we are brought into union with Christ. And in Christ we have fellowship with the Father by the Spirit. And we have fellowship with one another. Those are the very things actually that are pictured in the table this morning. In the Lord's table. And because we have this glorious union with Christ, because we are all indwelled by the Spirit, because we are the body of Christ together, that means then that it's impossible that sin in one area of the body could fail to affect other areas of the body. And again, this is picking up again on the idea of a little leaven leavens the whole lump. But it is important for us to realize that in the words of Paul in Romans twelve five, that we are members of one another. We're members of one another. In other words, our spiritual lives are, in a real sense, interconnected. We're not individual islands unto ourselves. In his letter to the, uh, the church at Corinth, Paul said it this way. In First Corinthians twelve twenty six, he says, If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And the broad principle here that I've just been pulling from that is, Is that our lives are interconnected as the body of Christ. What is good and what is righteous in one's life affects everybody. What is sinful and disobedient and evil in a person's life affects everybody. It affects the body. We're united in that way. So what happens to one affects the whole. Sin between two members affects the whole body. Peter said it this way. First Peter 2 5 you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ as living stones each individual living stones we are together being built up into a spiritual house our spiritual growth then is a community matter it's a community matter again the sin of one affects the spiritual health of the whole body. And so we need to deal with it. Let me point you to one passage uh, along these lines. Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. uh, Just the first couple of verses there. Jesus said this in verse 1. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. They understood the magnitude of what He was calling them, the the kind of generosity and attitude of grace and forgiveness that He was calling them to. And the main point of this passage is the need of the brethren to have an unlimited attitude and extension of forgiveness to one another. And in fact, to extend the same measure of forgiveness to one another that God has extended to us in Christ. That was the point of the parable, wasn't it, of Matthew chapter 18. The servant who had been forgiven so much was to extend that forgiveness to others. That's the idea here, that we are to be forgiving. But notice as well that Jesus instructs the offended one to go, as in Matthew 18, 18, where he says, rebuke him privately. Here he says, you are to go to your brother and confront their sin. He does not say go to the elder again. He does not say go to the pastoral leadership. He says, you go to your brother. And again, using the language of Matthew 18, you go to them privately. It's our responsibility as members of the body to fulfill this role. So one, he's telling the offended person to go to the offending person and to address their sin. This is what he's commanding us to do. Two, note the attitude of the one pointing out the sin is evidently with the desire to be restored with this sinning brother with an attitude of humility. This is demonstrated that he goes with this heart because... He's going with the attitude that's ready to forgive if the brother repents. Again, he's not going there to exclude. He's not going there to divide. But he's going there with a ready attitude to say that if this sinning brother repents, I will immediately and with joy extend forgiveness to this sinning brother. And again, even as God forgives us, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin. Aren't you so glad that God doesn't put a limit on that for us? Of how many times we can go to him in a day, in a week, in a month, and confess our sin. And receive this restoring forgiveness. This forgiveness of God in Christ. And in the same way, that's how we are to extend forgiveness uh, to the other. So his attitude of going and pointing out the sin again is not an attitude of rebuke that means to hurt and to harm. Rather, it is an attitude of forgiveness, a spirit of unity. Now, why would he command us to do this? What is the purpose that he would command us for confronting the sin in one another? Let me suggest to you at least three and that are even evident here in the passage. One is this. We're to do this to one another for the, and for the good of the spiritual health of the body. One is so that a spirit of bitterness would not develop in the one who has been sinned against. Evidently, in this passage, the one who is going is one who has been sinned against. That's why he is called to forgive him if he repents. He's been sinned against. He knows that he's been sinned against. It's such a sin of such a nature that it needs to be confronted and addressed. And if this brother repents, then he is to forgive him. And it is a failure to do that that leads to a spirit of bitterness, a spirit of division, that kind of held on anger and uh, uh, with a sense of just holding a sin against another brother or sister that causes a break in relationship. And this is avoided when we go when we actually talk about that sin and address it. It's also necessary that we go because it's presumably also good for the other sinning brother because of the danger in their own life that that sin represents to their own soul. If that sin were unchecked, if that sin were not pointed out, If that sin were not exposed, then it is a sin that would be most likely led to repeat itself, to happen again. And so it's a matter of love to go to them. It's also out of a desire to maintain purity and unity within the church. Again, because if it's held on to and there's bitterness, not only does that bitterness destroy the soul of the one who holds on to it, but it also then destroys the unity of the body. One person said this, commenting on this passage. And again, I repeat their words. I think they're helpful. It says, Disciples are to share in each other's commitment to pursue righteousness. Disciples are not to pursue their spirituality in isolation from one another. The community of believers is a family in the sense that the best interest of each member is a concern of each other member. Thus, the call to rebuke is the exercise of a familial responsibility. In other words, the responsibility of family. Paul demonstrates this also in Philippians 4.2. Philippians four two he says this he says I urge Eudia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord and here Paul even recorded for us in sacred scripture is addressing the sin of these two women who were failing to live in harmony he acknowledges them as believers in fact those who had served his ministry in the Lord, his ministry of the gospel, but he publicly calls them out to work out their differences. Why? Because as long as they held this division between themselves, it was causing disunity among the body. Again, that's the point here, is that we need to deal with sin because sin left unchecked relationally and other sin causes division and disunity within the body. But notice what he does here in Philippians 4.2. It actually doesn't come out in the translation so much of the New American Standard, but he deals with them individually. He uses the same phrase that uh, he uses the same phrase here, or a phrase here that says, "You are to go to Yutia. You are to go to Cintake. You are to go to them individually and address their sin and urge them and encourage them to come together and to be actually of the same mind." Matter of fact, he uses the same phrase there that earlier. In the letter in chapter 2 is uh, translated the same mind. That we are to be the same mind in the body. And he's saying go to them and urge them to be of the same mind. Exhort them. Entreat them to get together. To live together in unity. Urge them individually. Urge them as two members of the same body. To not be sustained in this kind of division that is only going to cause harm. And Paul's not taking sides here. He's not putting the blame more on one or more on the other. He's saying equally they need to come together. And they need to work these things out. If they are allowed to continue in this dispute and lack of harmony without resolution. It will hinder the unity to which we are called in Christ. And therefore the spiritual growth of the community. So those are just some examples to say that. We need to do it because if we don't deal with sin, either if we've been sinned against or if we see disunity and disharmony among other members of the body. If we're not dealing with that, that's the kind of thing that can lead to bitterness. That's the kind of thing that can lead to division. That's the kind of thing that affects the spiritual growth and joy of the body. It's also necessary, thirdly here, to warn of spiritual danger. It's necessary that we confront one another to warn of spiritual dangers. As a matter of fact, this is one of the main functions of preachers and elders. It was a main function of prophets in the Old Testament, and it might interest you to know that it's also one of the main functions of Scripture. In fact, he says in Second Timothy three sixteen, all Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's the role of the Word of God in the hearts of God's people. And as one of those who are called to preach the Word, it's also the role of the preacher. He says in verse 2 of chapter 4, Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Part of the public ministry of the Word is to expose sin, to confront that sin and to exhort to holiness that each person may be trained in righteousness. That each person may be built up in the faith and that sin may be avoided or dealt with immediately. Let me note a few examples of this directly where it's addressed. One of the things that we're then to warn each other with is about the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. He says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, he says this. Or actually beginning in verse 12. He says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. And he's saying this in the context of that we are to be aware as the body of Christ of how others in that same body might be being uh, susceptible to the deceit of sin. To being tricked by sin. That's the idea of deceit is trickery. The idea of deceit is, is where it convinces of one thing but it really has another intention, another end in goal. It's different than what it appears on the face of it or on the surface of it. And he's saying, it's very possible for us within the church, those who name the name of Christ, to be deceived by sin. To be deceived by sin. There are many ways that this is mentioned in scripture. I'll just list list them. You know them. There's the deceitfulness of riches. Do you see somebody who's exhibiting an inordinate amount of love for wealth? For pursuing the things in this world? advantages and advancement in this world in a way that it's affecting their testimony for Christ, their spiritual walk with Christ, we should go to that brother and say something. We should go to that sister and say something out of care for their soul. In Ephesians 4.22, he mentions the lust of deceit. Do you see those who are being carried away by the lust of their heart and who are going down a wrong direction, a direction that is dangerous, a direction in the way of the world? We should say something to them. He talks about the empty deception of philosophy and false spirituality in Colossians 2.8. Do you see somebody whose interest is being overly enamored with genealogies and philosophies and these sort of pride-inducing or unedifying areas of doctrine or theology? He deals with that in many places. Then we are to go to them. Do we see them being pulled into a false kind of spirituality, something that has dangers with it? where to go to them where to say something to them he talks about the deception of wickedness in Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2:10 that's now in the present world and will uniquely attend the presence of the antichrist but those deceptions are there here in Hebrews chapter 3 he mentions it more broadly and he says hardened by the deceitfulness of sin the deceitfulness of sin And the point is, is that all are susceptible to this kind of deception and thus able to become entangled in sin or in the worst case scenario, which is really his point here in the writer of Hebrews chapter three, in the worst case scenario to to not only be a believer who's caught up in sin, but actually to be one who's made a profession of Christ who ends up going all the way back into a false system of belief or into a life of Sinfulness and in fact showing themselves never to have been in Christ to begin with. And so we as the body of Christ, he says here in verse 12 or in verse 12, we are to be on guard. We're to be on guard. We're to take care, brethren, that it's not that kind of that kind of unbelieving heart is not in us, but we're also to take care that that kind of unbelieving heart is not in anyone else either. An old commentator John Brown said this, and again it's helpful. He says the duty of public exhortation forms an important part of the duty of Christian pastors. But it is plain from the passage before us that if it is the duty that it is the duty of all Christians, as they have opportunity privately to exhort and admonish one another, it is too much the practice of professors of Christianity in our times, and he's speaking in the eighteen around the eighteen hundreds, to speak of it even to speak of it to another person rather than to the one whom alone is in the first instance of being caught in it. It is to be spoken of, to lament over it in the presence, or they tend, there's a tendency to, for, to speak of that sin or to lament of it in the presence of others instead of endeavoring to remove the evil by friendly exhortation to the individual himself. In other words, when we see those things, sometimes there is a tendency to go around, maybe share it with a friend, maybe to be concerned in a group kind of setting, but never take and do the hard work of going to that brother or that sister privately and exhorting them. That's what we're called to here, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to. As a matter of fact, it is God's design, it is by His own purpose, that He protects his body he protects his children through their mutual encouragement exhortation rebuke with one another that's how he protects them in other words you as individuals and i in my own role am an instrument designed by god's own wise hand in his hand to be a means of protection towards others to protect them from the deceitfulness of sin, to protect them from the error of false teaching, to call them back to the way of righteousness, God is the one who's designed it that we should have that ministry in each other's lives. Listen, uh, just listen to it. I'll read it. In James chapter 5, he says this, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We're to see those who are straying from the truth, and we are to rescue them. Let me give you just one other passage. And Jude, he says this, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, saying in the last time their mockers will come following their ungodly lust. These are those who cause divisions, who are worldly-minded, who are devoid of the Spirit. He says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, And then he says this, And have mercy on some who are doubting, and save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, even hating the garment polluted by the flesh. That actually is pretty graphic language there. We're snatching them out of the fire. He's really reflecting the same thing that he's saying in James. If you see them going down a way of destruction, you are to go after them. You are to be a means of rescuing them, snatching them out of the clutches of deception and sin and error. And a final note, let me just make a footnote on that. This also implies that we are regularly among the body so that we can both receive and give this kind of warning. Sometimes people want to avoid, this is a footnote but it relates here, sometimes people want to avoid a commitment to the church just so they can, they can avoid receiving that kind of censure. That kind of rebuke in their own lives personally. If they're bouncing around from one place to another. Or they're never fully committed to a church. Sometimes the motivation is, is because when they get too committed. Or people get too close to their lives. They can get too close to seeing what's unrighteous in there. And they're too afraid of that being exposed. So they can simply bounce around to someone else. To avoid that kind of level of. Of accountability, It is somebody who wants to live also in isolation from fellow believers. Fellow believers. But when we live in isolation from the body of Christ... ...then we're more tempted to this kind of sin. Again, let me, let me borrow from someone else. In isolation, each was prone to be impressed by the specious arguments... ...which underlined the worldly wisdom of a certain measure of compromise of their Christian faith... Those kind of arguments are those kind of arguments that, that seem right on the front. They seem convincing, but they're really empty and they're wrong. And he says we're more susceptible to those kind of things in compromising our Christian faith when we're living in isolation of the body of Christ. But in the healthy atmosphere of Christian fellowship, these arguments would be the more the readily appraised at their truth worth and recognized as being so many manifestations of the deceitfulness of sin. In other words... When we're living in fellowship, when we're participating in body life, when we're subjected to the, the body of Christ corporately, then we are more protected from the deceitfulness of those things that are outside and from the deceitfulness of our own heart. If we live in isolation, if we separate ourselves, then we're all the more susceptible to be deceived by our own heart and by our own patterns of sin because there's nobody there to call them out. There's nobody there to help expose them. There's nobody there to help address them and help us to be restored in the path of righteousness. That was the idea of what he's saying there in Hebrews chapter 3.13 and what the author was saying. And so we need to be aware of the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness and the error of false teaching. And and when we lovingly confront one another, that's how we do that. And again, I just want to remind of what I mentioned last week. This is... However, not a support of what is called sometimes discernment ministries, which again, as we noted, I won't belabor this point, but their intention will just put the best face on it sometimes is to expose those things that could be harmful to the church. But very often those are a dangerous road to go down where the whole focus of your ministry is simply negative and to expose what is wrong and it can very easily lead to an attitude of superiority and self-righteousness that's very different than christian apologetics christian apologetics and a defense of the faith has as its end a positive statement of the truth the defense against error but to the end of a positive statement of truth whereas these discernment ministries not so much generally the ones i've at least experienced It's more just an exposing of error. They're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong. And again, there is some value and there are things that are pointed out that we would agree with and are serious, but if that's your whole ministry, that's a dangerous road to get down. So sometimes we need to to call out sin. We need to be aware of these kind of dangers in one another's life. And sometimes that even means calling it out publicly. I won't go spend time on that, but we see that with uh, lots of examples in Scripture, even there that we saw with uh, the two women in the church at Philippi who were not in harmony with one another. Let me get, move on to this. When do we confront then? What kinds of sins should be confronted? Well, we've already touched on that, but let me maybe add to it a few more. We are then to confront, first, sins that cause division. Sins that cause division among the unity of the body. Let me give you one passage here. In Titus 3.10, Paul instructs the church there at Crete, He says, reject a factious man after a first and a second warning. In other words, put them out and exclude them from the assembly of the body there. Let them no longer enjoy the same kind of fellowship until the sin is repented of. Now, the person being rejected here in Titus is literally a heretic. That's the the word. It's the only time that it's used in the New Testament, this particular word. And it is associated in the context of Titus with a person who was following false, divisive kind of doctrine. Unhelpful kind of doctrine. Unholy kind of doctrine. But the basic meaning of the term is this. It's is to cause division. It's to be one defined as factious and division making. As a matter of fact, the ESV captures the idea of it here. And they said, translate the word this way. A person who stirs up division. A person who stirs up division. The primary sin then that Paul is addressing here is those who cause divisions within the church. And again, in this case, by an over-interest in unhelpful, obscure, and speculative doctrine and teaching. One said this, heretics are simply people who have decided that they are right and everybody else is wrong. Paul's warning is against those who have made their own ideas the test of all truth. And again, that that can be, I'm not accusing all of it, but it can be a danger of discernment ministries. Again, he says, they've made their own ideas the test of all truth. We should always be careful of any opinion which separates us from the fellowship of our fellow believers. True faith does not divide people, it unites them, end quote. True faith does not divide people, it unites them. And so Paul is addressing here those who are pursuing these sort of obscure, unhelpful, even false doctrines, and what they're doing is they're causing division within the body. And he says they are to be gone to once, they are to be gone to twice, and then they are to be rejected, being self-condemned. He says in verse 11, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning and is being self-condemned. And, of course, the pattern there that's being followed is the very pattern that was laid out in Matthew 18. We spent several weeks on that if you ever wanted to listen to it, at least our take on it. But here he says they are to be rejected. They are to be rejected because they are causing division. That's the point I'm making within the church. They are to be pleaded with as a brother. They are to be sought with to be restored to fellowship by turning from their sinful actions. But if they are unwilling, they are to be rejected. So how would we notice that? When we encounter someone or we observe someone who's always argumentative or tends always in their conversation or doctrinal interest to sow seeds of doubt or disunity or division because of their own pet doctrinal emphasis, proudly refusing to address these differences in a spirit of brotherly unity and love, when we see that attitude, they are to be rejected. Now that obviously does not mean, of course, that there can be no even robust conversations and discussions about doctrine. That's not what's being talked about here. As a matter of fact, in our own membership covenant, we state that there does not have to be complete doctrinal agreement. There does have to be agreement clearly on understanding the fundamentals of the gospel. Those things about the nature of God, the nature of the work of Christ as a substitute in our place. Who died a real death as an atonement. Who was buried, who was raised on the third day bodily and physically. And who ascended back to the Father and will return. There are truths like that that are non-negotiable. That God is one God, three persons, and yet one God. That Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. That his death and his death and resurrection alone are the means of reconciliation with God through faith. Those are non-negotiable kind of doctrines. But outside of that, there is room for much disagreement. And so we state there doesn't have to be perfect agreement. And so this, that's not the kind of thing that we're talking about. Is every everywhere that somebody is skewed off of what... The doctrinal statement is in all of its detail outside of the core issues of the gospel and the nature of God. We do state this, that where there is disagreement, however, and where there can be healthy discussion and debate on matters of theology and scripture, that they are to be done with a clear attitude of maintaining unity and in brotherly love. In other words, they must not be factious and they must not be division causing kind of discussions. That would then fall under the sin of Titus 3.10 in which it would have to be rebuked. So there is a certain amount of wisdom there, but it's fairly obvious when these kind of things cross that line. It is fairly obvious. But if you see someone that's even in danger of that, then it's our responsibility to go to them and to call them back to consider their actions, to consider their interest, and to consider how they're approaching things and to warn them, to warn them. We are to do that. And that can particularly be uh, a sin that's possible uh, when you have a, highly, a church highly committed to doctrine. Uh, highly committed to doctrine. And we need to be, but the point is, is that that can be done in brotherly love. If it's not, and this person and this kind of interest brings about factions and divisions, then it is to be confronted. And again, there's a matter of discernment here. One person described it this way, R. Kent Hughes. Uh, and I think it's a good way. Like, how do we discern that? Here, here's one option. He says this. A divisive person loves to fight. A person who loves the peace and purity of the church may be forced into division, but it's not his character. He enters arguments regrettably and infrequently. When forced to argue, he remains fair, truthful, and loving in his responses. He, gr- he uh, groans to have to disagree with a brother those who are divisive by nature have the lust of the fray. They incite its onset and delight in being able to conquer another person. End quote. That's the character, the kind of character that Paul is addressing there. It's the kind in another direction, but that John deals with, with Theotrophes, who loves to be first. And he caused division in the church by rejecting apostolic and elder authority. And he refused to receive the brethren because he wanted to maintain his position of preeminence. That's a kind of sin that needs to be called out. It needs to be rebuked. So when do we confront this sin? When we see that the love of argument and the proud self-willed resolve of a person who holds a secondary doctrinal point with an over-importance that causes a break in brotherly love and unity in the body then we need to address that. We need to go to that person and to say something. We need to go when there's an abuse of power within the church in a way that promotes one's own agenda and excludes others in order to retain prominence and authority. We need to go to that person and we need to rebuke them. And there is then the sin that leads to error in the gospel. The sin that leads to error in the gospel. And I am going to have to stop on this point. I am going to finish it and stop and then next week we will absolutely finish with this. Let me just warn you why we, failing, why we fail to confront sin and then how we're to receive a rebuke. But let me note this. What is another kind of sin to finish this up? Sin that leads to error in the gospel. And this is an even more serious sin. In the Old Testament, if someone enticed others, they brought in The sin of idolatry, and they enticed others, even brothers and family members within the nation of Israel, to go off and worship and to be involved in false worship. Do you know what the penalty was? Death. They were to be stoned, even by their own family and friends. As a matter of fact, he mentions in Deuteronomy 13 that they are to be the first to throw the stones. They are to be the first to raise up their hand against the one who causes that kind of spiritual apostasy and introduces it into the nation of Israel. Now that's not prescribed, of course, that's not the prescribed punishment in the New Testament. But the sin of false doctrine is to be confronted with utmost seriousness. And by false doctrine here, again, I'm making a distinction against those doctrinal disagreements that we might have, which are the normal course of our life together as Christians. But I'm talking about those kind of errors that actually attack the nature of God and the nature of God's salvation in Christ. It's the kind of doctrinal error that Paul addressed in Galatians to the Galatians church. You're familiar with this? Let me just remind you, he says in verse 6, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only though there are some who are wanting to disturb you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, he is to be accursed. To be accursed. I said, as, as we've said before, so I say again, now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. That's strong language. But Paul used strong language because he understood the serious seriousness of this doctrinal error that was being allowed to creep into the church. And they were in danger not only of being misguided in areas of spirituality, although it included that and he addressed it. He, they were in danger of going down a road that actually, as he says in chapter 5, would have severed them from Christ. It would no longer have been fate in the gospel of grace, but it would have been another gospel. And he sees this kind of danger being coming into the church. And so he uses the most direct and clear and forceful language. But as we noted last week in 2 Corinthians 11, he did that out of his intense love for them. He did that out of his intense care and his intense concern. And particularly in our environment today where the worst thing you could possibly do is tell somebody else that they're wrong. Well, the worst thing you could possibly do is point out doctrinal error without being called a Pharisee. But we are called to do that in love. We are called to call out those things. Matter of fact, I'll never forget. It's, if it weren't so serious, it would be humorous. Uh, but it's not. Uh, it was, what was his name? Crouch. They had the network, TBN. It's at Crouch. And he just went on this tirade for... I don't know, it was like five or 10 minutes, you know, accusing MacArthur and others who pointed out the errors of that network, the sort of the extreme ends of this, the charismatic movement. We're not talking about all charismatics, but this kind of extreme end that was really in the, into heresy even. And they just went on this tirade about calling them Pharisees and rebuking and self-righteous and so on and so forth. So there's, there's always that danger. There is always that danger. But it is our responsibility, even as Paul did here with the Galatians, to, to point out that error when it's coming in. And he had to do that several times. Those who denied the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Those who said the second coming had already taken place. 1 Thessalonians 4. Those who had errant doctrines that promoted sin. 2 Peter 2. 2 Timothy 3. Those who denied the truth about Christ's nature. John did that in 1 John. All of these were, were sins and errors that needed to be addressed. And so those are the kind of things that we should confront. Well, what we do want to do is not only confront those things, but also the goal, again, even as Paul demonstrates for us in the letter to Galatians and throughout the New Testament, is to call them to truth. Because truth is ultimately what unites us. The truth about the gospel, the truth about Christ, the truth about who God is, that is what unites us. It is not by ignoring the truth or setting it aside. It is, in fact, by being the most clear on the truth that we could possibly be that creates the strongest bonds of unity. The strongest bonds of our unity in Christ and of the Spirit. And that is, in fact, what we picture here in the table that we'll now take. Our unity with Christ, we are in union with Him. We share the same Spirit, we have the same hope. We believe the same gospel. We're pursuing the same life of holiness and righteousness. And we submit and yield to the same Lord as He's spoken to us in His Word. And I pray that at least one thing we can take away uh, this morning, even as the table, is that we take this responsibility to help each other in that walk by dealing with each other in a way that is restorative, in a way that's humble, in a way that is patient, but in a way that is clear and in a way that is decisive. With the sin in one another's life, so that we might maintain this unity and this love and this spiritual growth together in the body of Christ. So we'll go into the table and pick this, finish this next week with how we're to receive this kind of rebuke when it comes to us. Let me pray as the men come forward. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to live this out. It is so challenging, but by your spirit and with the right spirit of love. Uh, then this is the way that a healthy body, a healthy family, healthy friendships, healthy relationships function. But the ultimate end of it all is that you might be honored and glorified and your people served in the truth. It is the benefit, one of the many benefits of us being together in the body. And so help us to be faithful to it. We commit ourselves to you. In your name, Jesus, amen.